0: We seem to have a pretty clear picture of the lives of women three or four hundred years ago. They were under the charge of their fathers until their parents chose a husband for them and then they had to get married. They had very little freedom and very little choice about it. But who decided when and to whom women in early modern England should marry? Why would a woman decide to refuse all her suitors and never marry? And what were the consequences of such choices? Hi, and welcome to Research Bites, the podcast of the Martin Buber Society of Fellows. In each episode, we feature innovative research in the humanities and social sciences by one of our fellows. Let's turn now to Dr. Jonathan Moss, who is interviewing Dr. Daphna oren magidor a historian of the family in 17th century England. Daphna will be telling us about one woman whose story sheds a different light on this topic.
1: Early modern England was a patriarchal society in the sense that men had power and control over the women in their family. Women had to obey their fathers until they got married, and then they obeyed their husbands. Most women did marry, and being a wife and a mother was considered the right path for a woman, even her avenue to salvation. But because women had to obey their husbands, and because marriage was so important, this meant that the choice of a husband was a very big deal. So for most women, marriage choice might be the most significant decision of their lives.
2: But was it even a decision? Didn't their parents tell them who to marry?
1: Of course parents were involved in marriage decisions, but they didn't make the decision for the couple. You see, theoretically, parents had complete power over their children, and especially fathers over daughters. In practice, though, it wasn't considered good form to actually use that power, at least not to its fullest. To make things even trickier, forced marriages were considered invalid. Both partners had to consent to a marriage for it to be legal. So marriage became an arena for negotiation between parents and children.
2: Wait, I'm a little confused. Did daughters have to obey their fathers, or not?
1: Look, under the law, a man could tell his wife or his children what to do, and he was allowed to use all means, or all reasonable means, to force them to obey. Even violence. But while everyone agreed that a husband or a father was allowed to do it, most people also agreed that if he got to the point of resorting to violence, he was basically a failure of a man. Masculinity was tied not only to control, but to self-control. A proper manly man was able to exercise his patriarchal authority gently by appealing to love, to propriety, maybe even by using tools like shame and guilt, but not by fear or threats or violence. So there was this tension between how much power fathers had in theory and how they exercised it in practice. And this tension was particularly prominent when it came to the question of choosing a husband. Basically, when we look at the 17th century, we see that marriage decisions are the battleground where young women fight for their freedom. Or maybe not the battleground so much as the negotiation table.
2: What you're saying is that marriage choices actually teach us something about the relationship between parents and children.
1: Exactly. But it's more than that. It teaches us something about how women exercise their freedom, limited though it was, in a society that was dominated by men. But how did it work in practice? My research focuses on one woman whose case really shows the delicate art of negotiating these boundaries, of understanding how far she could go in getting her own way when it came to marriage. Because the interesting thing about our heroine is that she announced to her father, at the age of 18, that she won't get married, ever. And then, she actually stuck by that decision for most of her life.
2: Until she didn't.
1: Until she didn't. But we'll get to that in a bit. Our story begins with a family called the Evelyns. If you know a bit about British history, or the history of mathematics and science, you might have heard the name in relation to John Evelyn. He was a famous 17th century writer, known for his extensive diary, his connection with the Royal Society, and his works related to mathematics and even to gardening. But John Evelyn is only a side character in this story. The star is his niece, Mary, or Maul, as her family called her, and as I will as well. She was the daughter of John's elder brother, George. Maul was not in any way a typical woman, not least of all because she had made this firm decision never to get married.
2: Was it really so unusual for a woman to be unmarried?
1: Generally, no. About one-fifth of women in this period in England never married. But there are two important differences between them and Maul. First, most women who didn't get married didn't actually make a conscious choice to stay single. They stayed single because they didn't find a husband, but they never said, I plan to stay single. It just happened. The second reason is a matter of social class. The vast majority of women who never married in England were working women from the lower and middle classes. Women in the upper classes, like Maul, very rarely stayed single. And if they did, there was a reason. The family might be too impoverished to pay a marriage portion, or they might be severely ill or physically deformed. But they certainly didn't say, oh, I'm not planning on marrying.
2: If that's the case, can Mole's story teach us anything, or was she just an eccentric outlier?
1: She was unusual, yes, but she wasn't a complete outlier. She was never a social outcast, for example. Her friends and family comment on her strange choice, but they don't see it as falling completely outside the norm. A lot of women in this period are actively negotiating with their fathers when it comes to marriage. They refuse to marry a specific man, and instead want to marry someone else, and they get their fathers to reluctantly accept their choices. Maul uses the same kind of tactic, but her goal is to remain unmarried. She wants to keep living on her father's estate and control her own life. So what Maul is doing is similar to what other women do, but she takes it further, and so tests the boundaries of what a woman could or couldn't do in this society, at least in her social class. That social
2: class, as you mentioned before, was upper class. But what does that mean?
1: Maul and her family were members of what we call the gentry. This means that most of their income came from owning land and collecting rents. Members of this class were often involved in politics and statesmanship. Maul's father, George, was a member of parliament. They were wealthy, but not very wealthy. Some of them might have titles, but they weren't really members of the aristocracy as such, which in England was really a very small elite group. Gentlewomen literally, women belonging to the gentry, enjoyed a lot of freedom, but they were also limited by needing to adhere to strict rules of proper behavior. Think of the kind of women who populate most Jane Austen novels. But we're
2: talking about a century and a half before Austen.
1: Yes, and those 150 years are important. Our story begins in 1664, and the England of 1664 is very different from that of the early 19th century. We're talking about a society that is just recovering from a long civil war. In this period, witches are still hanged, and women who are too outspoken are dunked in rivers. At the same time, 17th-century laws about marriage and inheritance are less codified than they will become in the 19th century. So, by Jane Austen's time, gentlewomen may actually have less ability to negotiate in the same way that Maul does.
2: Tell us more about Maul and her family.
1: As I said, Maul's father, George Evelyn, was a member of parliament. As the oldest brother in his family, he inherited the entire family estate, which is in a place called Wootton in Surrey in the southeast of England. George was married twice, and we start our story in 1664 because that's when his second wife, Mary, died, leaving him with three children. Or, well, four children, but the youngest daughter dies not long after her mother. So he's left with his eldest son and heir, also named George, who's about 19 at the time. The youngest son, John, is about 10 years old and away in school. Finally, there's his daughter, Mary, our mall. Maul is 16 when her mother dies, and George, who never remarries, raises her alone. He's really struggling to raise her to be a proper gentlewoman. He writes her dozens of letters in which he tries to get her to behave properly, to learn how to manage a household, to be a good hostess, to manage servants, and to go to bed at a reasonable hour, which is another thing that she refuses to do.
2: He writes her letters? Why does he need to write
1: letters? Don't they live together? For a lot of the year, they don't. For about a half of each year, Whenever Parliament is in session, George is in London. He lives in London and only comes to Wooten for holidays or the occasional weekend. He's constantly promising Maul that he'll be back to be with her, and then a few days later writing to say that he's detained and won't be back until later in the week. And then when George does come to Wooten, Maul is often away, because she goes either to London or to the countryside with her aunts. This is pretty normal in this period, for children to be sent to other family members for weeks, sometimes for months.
2: So for more than half of each year, George and Maul are living apart, and that's why their relationship is documented in writing. What's Maul doing with her time? Does she go to school? Does she have any kind of
1: employment? Girls in this period may get some formal schooling, either in an actual school or with a tutor, but only when they're very young. By the time a woman is 16, she's not at school anymore. What Maul is supposed to be doing, as the unmarried daughter of a widower, is managing his household. That's what women do until they get married. But actually, Moll doesn't really want to do this. Wooden has a housekeeper, Mrs. Hyam, and she's really in charge of most of the work in the house. Moll does entertain. She has guests coming to visit. She keeps up a correspondence with her relatives. She reads a bit and goes to plays, and she seems to keep informed of the latest fashion and gossip from London. In his letters, her father tries to get her to be more involved in the household, but it doesn't seem like she's very interested in this.
2: Do they talk about serious things, like Moll's future, in these letters? I would think that people usually save big conversations for face-to-face meetings.
1: Actually, in this period, a lot of people thought it was better to discuss important matters in writing. They found it easier to express anger or censure each other in letters than in person. So, yes, we don't know what George is telling Maul in person, but he's definitely being quite explicit and showing frustration and anger and other emotions in his letters to her.
2: And it's in one of these letters that Maul tells her father that she doesn't want to get married.
1: Yes, or not exactly. Almost 80 letters from George to Maul survive, but we have only a few letters written by Maul herself, and these aren't to her father, but to other people. In 1666, when Maul is 18, George writes a letter to her, and he says, basically, I hope you change your mind about your decision not to get married. And we know from other letters, letters George is writing to his brother, John, that at this point, they were trying to reach a marriage agreement for her, with a man named Mr. Gerald. John is the one who suggested the match, and he's giving it the hard sell. He tells George that Gerald is a religious, learned, sober, well-fashioned young person, furnished with many excellent accomplishments.
2: But Maul doesn't go for it.
1: Right. And her father tries to convince her to change what he calls her foolish resolution against marriage.
2: Her father thinks her refusal to marry is just a whim?
1: In the beginning, absolutely. His initial response suggests that he really believes she's just being a silly girl who will change her mind when the right offer comes along. And he tells Maul that once she spent a few months living at home alone without her father or brothers for company, although there are plenty of servants, she will change her mind and will want a husband who will be, instead of father or mother, for her.
2: Does her father insist on the match? Does he try to press her to marry Mr. Gerald?
1: The truth is, George himself isn't convinced about this specific match, because he thinks Gerald isn't offering enough money. Gerald's estate is supposed to be worth £1,200 a year. But George claims he already had offers for 1800 and even £2,000 pounds a year. He tells John this, and explains that while he won't marry his daughter off to someone horrible just for the money, he's really not in a position to set aside the financial considerations. Let's pause for a
2: moment and talk about this. What are the financial arrangements in marriage contracts?
1: Some of the legal and financial issues can get pretty confusing. But in the mid-17th century, the key factors are the marriage portion and the husband's income. The portion is the lump sum of money the bride's family gives to the couple to start their lives. The husband's contribution is normally noted in pounds per year. It's a regular, expected income that dictates the couple's standard of living. Maul's father is concerned, because he can only afford to pay a certain amount of money as a marriage portion. And he also wants to marry his daughter to a man who's expected to have a decent income throughout his life. He wants to make sure she'll be taken care of.
2: What constitutes a decent income for him? When you say that he wants an income of more than £1,200 a year, how much is that worth?
1: It's impossible to directly convert 17th century money to modern values. But to put it in perspective, the wages for a servant in this period were between 6 and £15 per year. So an income of £1,200 is many, many times that. It's about the equivalent of a seven-figure annual salary today. It's a lot of money. But remember that these people also lived in a lifestyle that had a lot of expenses. They had servants, houses, tenants, and so on. If he wanted his daughter to maintain the lifestyle in which she had been raised, George had to find her a husband with a high income. And the difference between 1200 and 1800 was huge.
2: So it's all about money.
1: Well, George is concerned about money, but it's not just that. He's really worried about Maul's happiness and well-being, especially after his death. In 1671, Maul is 23. And by this time, George is desperate enough that he's willing to entertain offers of a thousand pounds a year, but he still can't get her to agree to a match. And this is where things get interesting, because now it's no longer the whim of a young girl. It's a grown woman who is refusing to get married, despite her father telling her that she ought to.
2: How then does he go about convincing her?
1: The main thing he does is get her entire family in on it. Not only her uncle John, but also John's wife Mary and a bunch of other aunts. They're all trying to push Maul to accept a match, any match. They talk to her, and they write to her, trying to convince her that she needs to get married. This is very typical of the period. We know that marriage negotiations weren't just something that happened between the couple or even their parents. It involved everyone in what's called their kinship network, so extended family and even certain types of acquaintances. We actually have examples of young women being ostracized by their families, no longer invited to their houses because they won't marry the right man. Things never go that far with Maul, but her family gossips about her choices and her aunts put a lot of pressure on her to get married. One aunt urges her to consider her life after her father's death and take a husband to ensure her happiness. Another aunt writes to Maul to ask about a specific match, and Maul responds that she won't go through with it because she can't bring herself to fancy the man in question.
2: So then it seems the problem is with that particular match, that Maul is like the other women who are trying to negotiate for a specific husband. Why do you argue that Maul is making a more principled decision not to marry?
1: First, every time she was asked about a potential match, Maul said she couldn't marry the man because she doesn't love him. There isn't any one specific man that she was hoping to substitute. She rejects all suitors, regardless of who they are. But more importantly, we have letters from friends referencing Maul's decision not to marry. One of her cousins kept writing her these hilariously passive-aggressive letters in which she said things like, Since you declare that you are thoroughly uninterested in the affairs of love, you have no excuse not to visit me. And of course, there's George himself, the father, who writes both to Maul and about her, stressing the fact that she's resolved not to wed, even at the risk of being called a disobedient daughter for refusing to follow his commands.
2: Is being a disobedient daughter really that bad?
1: It's supposed to be. If masculinity was defined through control, then femininity was defined through chastity and obedience. A good woman is supposed to do what her father tells her, and later what her husband tells her. Being disobedient is a major character flaw, When George tells Maul that she's being disobedient, he's really trying to shame her into doing what he's asking. But at the same time, he lets her get away with it. He's desperate for her to get married, and is sure she'll be a miserable woman if she doesn't. But he also states outright that he won't force her to marry.
2: What's the distinction between asking her to obey and forcing her?
1: It does seem tricky from our perspective, but from George's letters, it's clear that for him there's a difference between saying, you need to marry this man in obedience to my wishes, and outright forcing the match, which he claims he can do, but won't. It's not clear what forcing means, but obviously Maul is completely dependent on him. She lives in his house, her only income is whatever money he gives her, so even if he can't drag her to the altar, he can exert very real pressure on her, and that's clearly a line he won't cross.
2: I understand how we know that George never forced Moll to marry. She remained unwed. But you seem to have an unusual window into his thought process here. How do you know he's making a choice not to force her into a match?
1: Because George said so. He writes to John that he's tried to persuade Moll to wed by all the ties of obedience she owes to me as her father, but that a lot of people have told him he should force her hand, and that's just not in his nature. In fact, George claims that there is no forcing our children against their inclination in the case of marriage.
2: Was this an unusual position? Maybe it's not Maul, but George who is eccentric.
1: (laughs) No, this was stated very clearly in all of the child-rearing manuals of the period. You can try to convince children, you can shame them, you can threaten them, but you can't force them. And certainly this wasn't an unusual decision in George's family. John, his brother, who seems to have been a stricter father agreed with George on this point. Several years after this correspondence, John is trying to get his own daughter to wed, and she won't marry the man he wants. In that situation, John also states that he will use whatever persuasions he can, but without compulsion, which he says he won't use.
2: Even within Maul's own family, we have another example of a woman negotiating over marriage choice.
1: Right. This negotiation is commonplace. The important difference is that Moll was trying to avoid marriage altogether rather than choosing a specific man. But she was able to do it because she could trust that George would never compel her. Every time a match was in the works, George wrote to her and said, I'm paraphrasing here, I want you to marry this man. I think marriage will make you happy and will protect you after I die, but I won't force you. You will never be able to say that you married someone you didn't love because I forced you. And yes, he does actually use the word love here. What does Moll gain by avoiding marriage? She gains autonomy. She gets to continue living at home on the estate with a small allowance. She spends her time doing pretty much whatever she wants, although what that is exactly is unclear. One of her cousins describes Moll as having a peculiar method of life with much freedom. This autonomy is limited. For example, she can't do what unmarried women in lower social classes do, which is work or open a business or become teachers. What about sexual freedom? Formally, none of these women have it. Unmarried women aren't supposed to be sexual at all. In practice, there wasn't always strict adherence to these rules. But for a woman in Mall's class to be sexual outside of marriage, that would have been a scandal. The interesting thing about Mall is that her family talks a lot about her, and they say some pretty vicious things. They call her ugly and lazy and manipulative. But in all this time, there is never even a whiff of criticism about her sexuality. Not even a hint that she's engaging in any kind of illicit sexual activity. So whatever she's doing with her time, I don't think it was sexual in nature. But as I said, she can't do what a lot of other unmarried women do. And she also can't really do what married women in the gentry do with their free time. She has no available funds to do things like engage in charity or get an expensive hobby like alchemy or medicine.
2: What about children?
1: I'm speculating here, but this might in fact be one reason she avoided marriage. We know her mother lost several children in the last years of her life, and this led to depression. So maybe Maul actually wanted to stay single so she wouldn't have to go through the same ordeal.
2: But she does get married in the end. What happened? Did she suddenly fall madly in love?
1: It would have been nice for this story to have a fairy tale ending, but no. Maul does get married in 1692. She's 44 years old at that point. She's not going to have any children. And she marries a man called Sir Cyril Witch. That's spelled W-Y-C-H-E, not like the witches who get hanged. We don't know exactly how she met him or what the marriage agreement was, but we do know that Sir Cyril had already been married twice. He had heirs, he doesn't need children, but we also know that he's actually never lived with any of his wives, and he doesn't plan to live with Maul. It's absolutely not a sweeping romance. For Sir Cyril, it's probably a financial arrangement.
2: And for Maul, why did she give up her freedom?
1: We don't know for sure because she doesn't write about it, and George's letters to Maul end in 1674, so we don't have their correspondence for this period. But the timing here is everything. You recall that George had two other living children, an older son and a younger son. The eldest son, an heir, died in 1676. And then the younger son, John, died in 1691. And at that point, George Evelyn has no male issue. Now, in England, only male heirs can inherit the main estate. So once George dies, the next in line to inherit Wooden, to inherit the estate, is the brother, John Evelyn, Maul's uncle.
2: And how does that affect Maul?
1: As long as Maul can be certain that the estate will go from her father to one of her brothers, she can be pretty confident that they'll give her the same kind of freedom she already has. They won't force her to wed, they'll let her keep living there. But once her younger brother is dead, she can't rely on her uncle giving her the same consideration, so she needs an insurance policy. She needs to make sure that there is a man who will take care of her needs once her father is dead. And literally within months of her brother's death, she accepts Sir Cyril's suit, and they marry very quickly after that.
2: That does seem like quite a coincidence. You mentioned earlier that Mole and Cyril don't live together. Really?
1: Not for the first six years of the marriage. Mole continues to live at Wooden with her peculiar freedom— except that now she's Lady Witch and she has a much higher social standing. When her father eventually dies in 1699, Moll indeed has to leave Wooten, and that's when she finally moves in with her husband.
2: Could you say Maul's lifelong struggle for independence failed?
1: No, she gets exactly what she wanted. She gets as much freedom as a woman in her class could get in this period. All through her life, her family thinks she's strange, that she's just playing games and being foolish and refusing to wed. But she's actually being incredibly smart. As long as she's under the authority of her father, she can negotiate. She can get a lot of freedom if she sticks to her decisions and doesn't cave in to the guilt and pressure and rhetoric about obedience. But this can only last as long as her father or her brothers are alive. Once there's a chance she'll find herself at the mercy of her uncle or another relative who's less invested in her well-being, she has to make sure she has an alternative.
2: That's fascinating.
1: Do you see other women doing things like this? Yes, just not at the same level. There are quite a few women who use a similar tactic to refuse specific matches and to convince their fathers to let them marry the men they prefer. Like Maul, they trust that their fathers won't force them into a match because the ideology that limits patriarchal authority is quite strong. It's accepted that you need to get your children to obey with kindness, not with force. And these women know this and use it to get what they want.
2: But they did get married.
1: Most of them, yes. And probably most of them wanted to get married. They grew up in a world that told them that marriage and children are the primary duties of a woman. And they didn't disagree with that. They were happy to enter into that life. Why is Maul different? I don't know. As I said, it might be that she wanted to avoid her mother's fate by not marrying and therefore not bearing children. There could also be other reasons. There's some indication she may have suffered from some obscure medical condition. Maybe that was related. Or maybe she just really wanted to keep doing her own thing for as long as possible. The crucial thing is that while it was unusual that she refused all matches until she had no choice, it wasn't unusual for a woman of her class to negotiate for the limited freedom she could get from the men in her life, especially when it came to marriage. Maul's case, if anything, illustrates that women had a really clear understanding of where they stood in relation to male authority. They could push the boundaries up to a point. But only up to that point. If they tried to get too much freedom, they might lose it all. Which is why, in the end, Mary had to marry.
0: You have been listening to Research Bites, the podcast of the Martin Buber Society of Fellows in the Humanities and Social Sciences. In this podcast, we hope to offer a taste, or a bite, of the research taking place in our society and the kinds of conversations taking place in its offices, hallways, and indeed, the kitchen. Additional episodes discuss matters such as the collaboration between the Catholic Church and the Stasi in East Germany and visual aspects of the Quran. Our thanks to Dr. Renana Keidar, who helped produce this episode, Omri Bendor is our series producer, and Ori Dror is our sound recorder and editor. The Buber Society is a German-Israeli collaboration housed at the Hebrew University and funded by the German Federal Ministry of Education and Research. For more information about the Martin Buber Society of Fellows, about this episode, and about additional episodes, please visit our website, buberfellows.huji.ac.il. That's booberfellows huji.ac.il